You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and today I am joined with Dr. Sherman De Silva. She is the founder of Trunks and Leaves. We are going to have another amazing discussion about elephants, my favorite. Welcome, Sherman. Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me on your show. I'm so glad to be here. I I mean, I could literally probably do an Angie knows this. I could probably literally do a elephant podcast on my on my own and just talk about them every week. I love them so much. Uh, so I did. I did. I did listen to your earlier one on elephants in preparation. So, oh, and it's interest of full disclosure. Yeah, and you could only scratch the surface in an hour. Like, there's just so much to them, to mm-hmm. all these creatures and animals. But uh, thank you. So, I guess my first question is. Because we have so many listeners that are either in working in conservation or they really want to get involved in conservation. So I always like to ask, you know, your background and how you got to where you are today. So, uh, you know, please take as long as you want. But how did you really, I, I guess, from childhood on get into conservation and get to where you are today? Yeah. So, you know, I was that, the kind of kid who loved to watch nature documentaries, right? Um, and you, you know, what kid doesn't, but you know, I, when I, I grew up in Sri Lanka and this was not something that we had 24 seven, like we had TV only in the evenings. We had two channels. (laughs) It makes me sound like I was born in the 1950s or something, (laughs) but like that was what we had in Sri Lanka. And we had a very limited number of programs. We had like some British programming. We had Marty Stauffer's wild America, which I adored. Um, I think it's, like, it's from the 1970s. This is like yes, the yes. 80s for us. But yes. um, and I just, you know, dreamed about, you know, working with animals like ever since I was a kid. I would, um, But I grew up in a city. I grew up in Colombo, which is, uh, you know, a, a pretty busy metropolis. And my family is not very outdoorsy. So we I didn't really even realize that there was nature in the country. Like it all seemed like it was all, you know, it was just on TV. And then fast forward, you know, many years, my, my family moved to the U.S. Um, I studied here and I really wanted to study animal behavior. And uh, when I was in college, I, you know, I took the classes and I got really interested in how animals think and communicate. And I wanted to study how um, animals communicate and how that relates to human language, how we communicate. 
And I pretty much just, I said, I decided, okay, if I'm going to grad school, what am I going to study? I have to pick a species. And I made a list. <laughs> I literally made a list of all of the, like, you know, the, th- the papers that I had read and things that I had seen that of like species that look like they might be interesting to study. So on that list were, you know, primates, um, dolphins, um, cr- uh, ravens and corvids, you know, um, and elephants were on that list. And and now I knew in Sri Lanka, we had lots of monkeys and we had lots of elephants because when I was growing up, you know, this is kind of part of the background. That's just part of the the culture. And I just kind of, they were just there, you know, I took them for granted. Um, but then when I looked at into to the research, it was I, was, I was surprised at this time, this was back in the mid 2000s or early 2000s. There, there had hardly been any research on Asian elephants in the wild. So I knew all about African elephants. I had read about African elephant research. Um, I had, you know, seen the documentaries, and I knew that um, African elephants produce these low-frequency vocalizations. Um, and I was really interested in studying more, you know, about elephant vocalizations because it seemed like there was a, a lot of research to be done. And I thought, well, gee, I'm, you know, if we've had Asian elephants around in captivity for so long, you know, thousands of years, we must know way more about Asian elephants. So, but then when I looked it up, I was shocked that there was, you know, this one book from the Smithsonian back in the 1970s. Um, And pretty much since then, there had been, you know, some books uh, on sort of like the general ecology and a lot of research in on captive elephants, and you're probably familiar with, right, things like reproduction and feeding and all of this uh, physiology. But there there were hardly any published studies, like there were maybe two papers out at that time on behavior, like in the wild, in elephants. And I thought, that can't be right. And, but, you know, the I, and I looked and I looked and yeah, that, that was, that was it. And so I thought, well, you know, there's, you know, lots of people working on these other species. Um, and here's something that is like, seems like it's right under your nose, you know, it's right in people's backyards, literally, in some cases, and we'll talk more about that. And, and, and we just have to know more. Um, and so that's how I got into elephants. Um, because I, I also wanted to work on something that would allow me to go back to Sri Lanka, because I wanted to maintain that connection. And um, I had family there, and you know, and I, and I just and there was so much of the country that I had not really explored w- when I was growing up there, and so this was also a way for me to sort of rediscover that. And so that's how I got into Asian elephants um, in particular. And it, it then once I got started, um, I just found that you know there's more than you know I, I, I veered from studying communication to just the whole social system and how that how that works because before you can understand communication you have to understand the social structure and we were in for some surprises there um so that it all went off from there i I mean yeah i'm I'm gobsmacked i'm I'm surprised that the the behavioral research in elephants is lacking you know and did you find that in say African versus Asian, was there more literature or, or research published studies? Yeah, yeah, that was definitely yeah. the case. Because um, now, it, like, for example, even with vocal communication, like, so this, you know, the discovery like that elephants communicate using infrasound, um, that was actually done in the zoo at, at, at the time, the, you know, the Oregon Zoo, uh, which is what's now the Oregon Zoo. 
um, and on Asian elephants. Um, but the since that time and even before that, the research in the wild, like in, it has been really focused on African elephants, um, pretty much since the 1970s onwards. And there's been a lot of really excellent research done both in East Africa and South Africa, and you know, and and so a lot of the the even the scientific literature, when people talked about elephants. And, you know, just elephants with a capital E, most, you know, and this sort of tended to lump everything together. Um, but African elephants are not representative of all elephants. African no. elephants, in fact, are two different species. Uh, now, mm-hmm, most people, mm-hmm. you know, agree there's the forest elephant and the savannah elephants, and they themselves are quite different behaviorally. And, um, and that's an entirely separate genus from Asian elephants. And I tell people, you know, um, According to the current estimate, you know the divergence time between the Asian and African um, branches of the family tree is about five to seven million years, Um, and it's approximately the you know the span of time separating, uh, say, tigers, leopards, and lions from their common ancestor, right? Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. And so you wouldn't really lump together leopards and lions and tigers; they're very different animals. and so why would we confuse the elephants? They just kind of superficially, I mean, they do look similar and elephants are elephants to the extent, you know, they have a, a long trunk and they have big ears and they, you know, eat the same kinds of food um, generally, but there are differences. It might be a little bit more subtle than say tigers and lions, um, but, but there's a lot to learn. So yeah, I think uh, even even amongst uh, even among scientists, um, that tendency has kind of the inertia of it has c- continued. Like today, when you know people just sort of talk about elephants, they're really talking about savanna elephants. I feel like mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because that's where a lot of the the research and also the publicity has been. Yeah, I mean they're they're so iconic, and it's just when you think elephant, that's probably what a lot of people think, but. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. Like when I was getting my, it you know started to get involved in my research. I mean, I did dabble a little bit in African elephants, but yeah, it was mainly Asians uh, because we had access to them. It, it's, it, it has, I, and I want the listeners to, to really think about that because one of the things we cover when we talk about a species is their natural history. And you're right. I never thought of it that way, that Asian elephants diverged so long ago, like these other species of big cats. So that's a that's a fascinating point because you know you even think behavior between a forest elephant and a savanna elephant is going to be night and day. So you can only imagine, and we're going to jump into it. You know the difference mm-hmm. between Asians mm-hmm. and Africans. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that's fascinating. So I guess to kind of start laying this out, where are we in the beginning of 2021 with Asian elephant conservation? You know the the big picture. So what what are some of the conflicts we're 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 looking mm-hmm. at right now? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what's their populations looking like right now? Yeah. So um, in, in 2020, as of as of the, the last sort of um, roundup of estimates um, from around the different countries. So there are 13 countries that wild Asian elephants still survive in. Um, and it looks like their population has been keeping relatively stable between 40 and 50,000. So if you split the difference somewhere around 44, 45,000. Um, and the, the large bulk of that, like 60% or so is in India because India is the biggest country out of those 13 countries. 
And so it has the largest land area um, for elephants. Um, the next biggest population is, in fact, in Sri Lanka, which is not the, the second largest range state. Um, and then on down through the list. So um, those populations represent the South Asian or mainland subspecies of, of Asian elephant. Um, some people call them the Indian elephant, but that's actually kind of a misnomer. It should just be the mainland elephant. And then um, the recognized subspecies right now actually include, like, so Sri Lanka is, is kind of separately recognized, but that, that there's some debate whether genetically they're distinct from the mainland. So I lump them together with the mainland. And then there's the Bornean elephants, which are not recognized as a distinct subspecies, but I think they pretty soon will be because there's pretty broad consensus that they should be. And they're numbering uh, just a few, uh, maybe a thousand, a few thousand, or uh, it's not quite clear how many there are. Um, and then the Sumatran elephants also similarly numbering a few thousand. And the Sumatran elephants are recognized as a distinct subspecies. In fact, they're the one subspecies that is classified as critically endangered. Um, and so the three populations are doing, you know, they, the, their status is different. Um, the mainland elephants, because we have so many of them, um, are they're responsible for the bulk of that 45,000. Um, but even the mainland elephants, if you go country by country, in Southeast Asia, they're doing far worse. Um, so the population that is most threatened right now is in Vietnam, where they're in double digits, and they're very fragmented. So there's just, you know, little little pockets of elephants um, in, because the habitats are so fragmented. And then, you know, other parts of Southeast Asia, the population sizes are, um, you know, about comparable to, you know, just in the, in the few hundreds um, here and there. And, you know, if you add them all up, you might have a few thousand elephants, but they're not really dispersing, you know, they're not really mingling. So you have a problem with like, you know, gene flow, um, spawn populations. And so those are big threats to um, so many elephant populations. Um, and then by and large, the, the, the biggest issue for Asian elephants uh, throughout the range countries is what people call human elephant conflict. Now, what that really is, is elephants kind of trying to make a living, people trying to make a living, and there being negative interactions between people and elephants as a result. Um, largely it's because people need land and elephants need land and, and there's only a limited amount of that. And people generally, you know, keep, tend to expand and encroach, um, you know, the, the progression of human activities just keeps eating away at, at elephant habitat. And so, you know, elephants are big animals. They live a long time. And when they lose habitat, they don't just sort of, you know, lay down and die. They, they, they continue, they, they carry on. And so in some cases, it means that populations that were otherwise, you know, hidden from view are now visible. Um, in, in other cases, you know, these populations are being displaced from one place to another. And so they might be moving. Uh, they might be moving into areas where people have no experience with elephants. So they don't know what to do. And that might create conflict. Um, quite often, it means passing through agricultural landscapes or plantations or places, you know, that um, where elephants are not welcome. Um, and so all of this is, is what falls under the umbrella term, quote unquote, conflict. Um, and then there are 
more rarer, you know, um, instances where elephants actually do damage property or, you know, injure or even kill people. This happens in places where there's, you know, the really high conflict areas are where there's really very little habitat. In fact, very little elephants. There's maybe just a few elephants that are responsible for the bulk of those conflicts. Um, so then the, the next sort of the consequence of that is that, you know, elephants then are also injured or killed by people. Um, so people might in, in initially take sort of more passive approaches, you know, just chasing elephants away or trying to put up barriers or fences or things. And then, but once people, when people get sufficiently desperate, they take more drastic means, you know, um, taking either weapons or poison or um, other means that can be lethal to elephants as a, as a means of trying to control or um, divert elephants and um, deter elephants. Yeah, yeah, I, it's it's very complex, and I know we'll, we'll, we'll kind of get into this a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, it just came up in my head. What do you know the population or the total population of captive Asian elephants? And I know it's going to differ, you know, by country by country. But it, you know, mm -hmm. talking about exploitation and and you know also as working animals, uh, do we have a handle on on how many we have in that? That's a good question. I don't know what the global population is. I know that there are several thousand captive elephants in Myanmar and Thailand, respectively. And I, um, and those are the, the two largest captive elephant populations that I'm aware of. Um, the captive elephant populations, even in countries where they have been, you know, they've historically played a large role, like India and Sri Lanka, I think are much smaller. In Sri Lanka, it's, um, it's just over 100. It's fewer than 200. In India, it's probably, again, in the hundreds, not thousands. Um, and in the other countries I'm not really familiar with, um, that's different from, you know, the ones that are outside of range countries, like in zoos and things. So I think that's a right, pr right, pretty right, small right. number. Very um, tiny, yeah. yeah. So I think the captive elephant populations are most that are, that are sort of, of most concern are these big ones in Thailand and uh, Myanmar as far as, you know, what's, what's their fates. And I think we'll, we'll probably get into that a little bit more as well. Yeah. Um, later on. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So, I, I guess one of the talking about Asian elephants. Mm -hmm. What are some of the misconceptions about them? Hmm. Yeah. I'm glad you asked because um, I, you know, I talk to a lot of people, and I find a few misconceptions that come up very frequently all the time. Um, and one we already talked about, which is, you know, this kind of conception that Asian elephants and African elephants are somehow are, are the same and people just sort of lumping them together um, and they're not. And the other one is, and I think this feeds into that, um, is because people are so used to seeing Asian elephants in captivity in zoos and then until recently in, in things like circuses and, and, and entertainment, there's an assumption that Asian elephants are somehow more tame or or even you hear the word domesticated uh, mm -hmm. people use the word domesticated um and in fact in in thailand um there's no there's elephants that are in captivity are essentially treated like draft animals like you know donkeys or or cattle or something um and so this word gets thrown around but in fact you know technically scientifically as you know domestication means that an animal has to have been bred 
for generations with, you know, certain features that have been selected Mm -hmm. um, for people to serve some kind of purpose. So when you say a horse is domesticated, the horse that you see today is very different from the ancestral horse 5,000 years ago or 6,000 or whenever that happened. Um, And likewise, so are dogs. Dogs are quite different from wolves. Um, And they have a bunch of, you know, not only physical traits, but also personality, you know, character traits um, and behavioral traits that we have selected. And that's even true for plants. Um, We've selected features that we want. So, but in the case of elephants, that's never been done. So elephants are fairly unique in terms of all of the different species that humans interact with and, you know, have been in company with because we have a 5,000 year history of interaction with them. Um, But it's pretty remarkable when you consider that they've never actually been domesticated. The elephants that are in captivity, you know, until the very recent past have had some connection to the wild. And even the ones that are in captivity, these large populations that I mentioned, you know, they're allowed to go out and breed with wild elephants. Um, and so the, the, it's, there are still very much wild animals, even the ones that are in captivity. Um, so that's a, a, a big misconception. And I think that um, unfortunately also uh, undermines conservation to some extent because, you know, people, you know, view yeah elephants kind of as sort of like they're taken for granted like i said before you know like oh they're you know they're they're practically domestic right um they're like draft animals but they're not and um they're in fact the other misconception is that they're less endangered somehow than african elephants um but numerically asian elephants are outnumbered by african elephants 10 to 1 and so if anything they're more endangered um, which is not to say African elephants don't have problems. They do. I mean, they have severe problems. Um, but the main thing that people think of when they think of like, oh, what are the cons- conservation challenges for elephants? The first thing they think of is ivory, the ivory trade, which which has gotten a lot of attention because it has been really detrimental um, to African elephant populations. And it has you know, severely depleted African elephant populations. But because Asian elephants don't all have tusks, in fact, only the males have tusks, and a fraction of males actually don't have tusks. Um, and in, like, for, if you take different populations, you know, it's a different percentage of males that have tusks. But for example, in Sri Lanka, there's very small number. It's like two to three percent. It's probably like the most skewed population, where most pa- males don't have tusks. So, as long as you have, you know, animals in the population and females don't have tusks ever. Um, if you if you do, if that's not really a threat as to the extent that it is for African elephants, where both sexes can have tusks, and so that's another big misconception. The ivory trade has been in the past, you know, really re- has been responsible, for example, for skewing sex ratios in parts of India, and and that and there was a time when it looks like you know pretty much all the bulls or the older bulls had been wiped out because of the ivory poaching, and so it's not. I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to downplay. Um, the impact that's had historically, but just right now, it's not the the main issue. The main issue is um, the, the the habitat loss and the conflict that results from that. Um, so those are, I think, the the major misconceptions and and the fact that you know just because we have there are elephant populations in captivity, um, I think there there's there's there are there are lots of difficult conversations to be had about what those captive elephants are doing in terms of their the role they play in conservation um mm-hmm. so it's you know it's 
it's, it's common to think of captive animal populations as being a sort of insurance policy, right, um, as, a, as a safety measure in case of extinction. And there are many species for which we have examples where they've been successfully brought back um, or rescued through those captive breeding efforts and, and released into the wild. So that can be, that can be really important. But for elephants, the, like, as you again know, they breed really slowly. Right. Yeah. They they, yeah, they, yeah. they reproduce, you know, under, on a good day. Right. Like on, under good yeah. circumstances, you know, they they have a really long um, gestation period, which is two years. And then there's a period where the calf is nursing, which is another couple of years. So minimally, the mom can have another calf, uh, you know, every three years, but more optimally for her and for the calf, you know, every four years. We've found that in the population that we've been studying that the median age, the median birth interval is um, about six years. You know, so the median, that's the middle. That means that there's animals that have even longer birth intervals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the short end is, you know, three, the middle is six. And then the long tail of that, we don't even know how long it can be. It might be 10 years, who knows? And so it, that, those are attributes that are not really conducive <laughs> to breeding um, an animal in captivity, right? What you, if you're, if you're going to breed them, you you really want them to be prolific and elephants are not that. And so it, as of now, there, uh, there are no, there's, there's, there's no um, scenario in which the captive elephant populations are going to be able to rescue wild elephant populations. Now, it may be possible, you know, with some of these really large captive populations that um, people are experimenting with rewilding them and trying to, you know, uh, release them back into the wild. And and these are animals that have had human contact that have been working, for example, in the timber industry and whatnot. So, you know, there is some prospect that these animals could play a role. And I think that's really exciting. But as far as like breeding elephants, you know, for the purpose of bringing back extinct population, we're not there yet. No, no, no. And I, uh, it's what's frustrating about conservation. Some people are like, oh, well, cloning and, and uh, this is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, anybody... we, could, we, we could talk about that, actually. <laughs> yeah. Anybody that, yeah. So anybody that listens and, and I was a big, you know, when I was in academia, a big proponent, because I, I, I did a lot of, uh, I was working with a lot of the early cloning work uh, in the early 2000s. It, you know, down at Texas A&M, some of the big firsts. And I thought, wow, we're going to be able to clone the mammoth one day and I can't wait. And I want to be involved with it. Some of my research I thought could help with it. I, it's the worst idea I've ever heard of because <laughs> it's, it's going to millions, if not billion dollars to, to produce a mammoth for entertainment. There's right. no way you're going to clone this animal and re-release them in the wild and they're going to survive and thrive. So it's interesting, even with captive animals. Right. So, I, you know, from a behavioral expert, could you just quickly talk about, because some of the research you've been in, very pivotal studies, mm. but, you know, I, I just want to jump on this opportunity while, while we're talking about it. Taking a captive, not domestic, and, and I did want to say, to domesticate a species, the the only research we have is that uh, the the silver fox study, I believe, out of Russia. Right. And yeah, fifty generations it took to mm-hmm. get a domestic fox. Mm-hmm. And so for an elephant, uh, the generation interval is what twenty years. I can't remember off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. You're you're talking centuries mm-hmm. <laughs> to, <laughs> to to do that. Um, mm-hmm. But from the behavior standpoint, what some of the behaviors would be missed if from a, a 
an elephant that's in captivity versus one that grew up in the wild, what, what would be some of the things that a, a captive elephant would have difficulty with? Yeah. So that's, um, and you know, I've been thinking about that since pretty much the beginning. Cause you know, at, initially when I was interested in studying communication, I thought it'd be really fascinating just to compare the communication of wild elephants with captive elephants. And I had some colleagues where we compared just the overall vocal repertoire. And um, a thing that I noticed was um, that when I, when I went to some of the captive elephants that were in Sri Lanka and I made recordings of them, it was really weird. Um, and these were, these were animals, I don't know at what age they came into captivity. But um, for example, in one population, in, in like one, you know, there were like five, five animals or so. And I, 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 the, the people that, that took care of them said, Oh yeah, this one always chirps. And it was true. Like you listen and, and like the chirp was her go-to, you know, vocalization, like no matter what happened, she chirped. And then the, 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 there was other one who rumbled and liked to rumble and kind of talk to you, you know, with rumbles. And, um, and already like, this is, this is really weird because elephants should all, you know, be able to produce the full suite of, of vocalizations that they have i've described 14 or so which are acoustically you know clearly distinct to us as humans but then there's probably some more subtle variations that you know elephants pick up on and then so, so then so then i wondered well whether they were kind of sort of i don't know they, they had these weird repertoires because they came into captivity at a really young age and never learned but at that point we didn't know if elephants were vocal learners and so um for your listeners just to um to, to to let them know so vocal learning is actually quite rare in the animal kingdom and uh, it's it, among mammals it's even more rare so songbirds learn um some uh, aquatic mammals like dolphins whales people know um learn um but among primates we're pretty much it and there, there's some vocal learning that has been taught to, you know, to animals like chimpanzees and whatnot, but um, they're, it's, it's been really hard. And, and the bottom line is they don't do it naturally. And so a few years ago, um, we heard of this elephant in Korea, in a, in, a, in a South Korean zoo that had just spontaneously started imitating its keeper. Um, um, with awesome. with words like it was producing words in in Korean, and it was just yeah, at, no at first. <laughs> I don't know, well, I, get, I don't know if you saw this, but there were videos no. that came across, and oh, I thought, wow. okay, that's got to be a hoax. It's got to, right. you know, it's crazy. Like it doesn't even sound like an elephant. It sounds like a midget, <laughs> first of oh, all. Like it sounds like I mean, I that's not a PC word. I'm sorry, but it just it sounded yeah. so strange to for to this sort of high-pitched voice coming out of an elephant and you see the video it, it put its trunk inside its mouth and was like doing something funky with its trunk to get the sound out and i thought that has to be like you know a doctored video or like some audio that was like you know stitched in and so i kind of ignored it and then another colleague of mine came and came to me with this with this video and like the this observation saying hey they want us to do a study and i said oh well, okay and 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 so what they did was they compared um, the these sounds. The, I guess the elephant was actually producing them. They compared these sounds to Korean words, and they had um, blind listeners, meaning people who didn't know whether it was being produced, you know, by a person or something else, um, transcribe the words and say what they heard. 
And so people, for the most part, you know, accurately could distinguish what these so-called quote-unquote words were. And then she also compared it to the natural vocalizations, which I provided from our recordings. And you could see, oh, they're like, they're acoustically really distinct. I mean, not only can you hear it, but, you know, you can measure different things and they just completely are on a different part of the spectrum. And so this is a bull. This is a male elephant. And we don't typically think of males as being very social. And it was reared pretty much in, you know, in solitary. It was kind of all by itself. And it just taught itself. He just taught himself to imitate his keeper, some commands, you know, six different commands or so. And um, this, and that, and, and, and I've been curious ever since, but unfortunately no one has even still to this day done the study because it's really hard. Whether uh, elephants are vocal learners naturally, you know, whether they have to acquire even their natural vocal repertoire through learning, just as, you know, um, we do or as some birds do. Um, but I would bet my bottom dollar that that they that they do need to do that. And so that was a long <laughs> way of saying that you know captive animals. That's one example of a, you know communication systems can be very complex, and that's a, a, um, and that's just acoustic communication. Of course, elephants communicate through chemical signals, through visual signals, right? Body language, various things. And it's it's I've been uh, I, I've been wondering whether there are differences, for example, between populations, you know, we mentioned there are three different subspecies, and there are populations that are scattered, you know, in 13 countries across different ranges that have no connection with each other, whether there might be differences in the ways that they communicate. And um, if you had a captive animal that had not had that exposure, and were, you know, put out into the into the wild and had to interact with other wild elephants or even you know rear its own offspring someday whether they would be appropriately able to do that because communication is really the glue that helps a society function and elephant society where you have a very social animal um, that has to be really important um, so that's one very important aspect of um, of behavior that might uh, be difficult to adjust in a captive yeah into yeah, tree, yeah, tree. yeah it's so complex it's just so so complex and that's it you know i think the greater public that don't delve into this they think it's easy oh just throw them out on the land and they'll be fine mm-hmm. like, uh, no that's not even you know going back to one of our early my earliest uh, interviews was about uh, rhino relocation and they had to spend months in bomas to mm-hmm. you know and these were black rhinos from I think London Zoo that were transported down uh, to Africa and it mm-hmm. took months and months and months to, tr- to, to train them just to what plants to eat. So Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very, 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 very difficult. So I, I guess my next question was to switch gears a little bit, behavioral differences between Asian and African elephants. What are some of the things that your research has found? Yeah. So um, the, the, the very first thing that um, I had to try to, I had to do when I was started my study was uh, identify the social groups. And I kind of thought based on the African elephant uh, characterization, where you have very strong family groups led by matriarchs, that that's what I would find in Asian elephants, because this is kind of how people talked about elephants in general. 
And so when I went out there to ID, I identified my elephants, I, you know, started giving them names alphabetically and um, in terms of the social groups that I thought they belonged to. And um, in the, my first couple of days in the field, I got really confused because I would see a group one day and then I would give them all like, say, names starting with the letter A and another group with the name starting with the letter B and so on. And then I come back the next day and I'd see that some of the groups had split up or some of the groups had merged together or, you know, some of the individuals had transferred between groups. And, um, and I also couldn't clearly identify like a leader within any group. There was no clear quote unquote matriarch, even though, you know, there are individuals of different ages and there's always an oldest individual in the group. But um, the the thing that I found over the the initial several years of cataloging all these individuals and keeping track of who they were seeing with is that the social system is quite a bit more fluid than what people have described for African savanna elephants. And that means that on any given day, they might be a social group might be split up and foraging, you know, in in little. Um, in little splinter groups, and you can't see the entirety of the social group because they're spread out throughout the landscape. And there may be other social groups that are also similarly sp- spread out. And what's really confusing is that they're all kind of on top of each other uh, in space, if you think about it. So they're kind of mingling, but they're not spatially in the same place at the same time. And so th- this has a whole lot of consequences. So um, compared to African elephants, the what, the elephants in my population don't exhibit a lot of dominance behavior or aggression. Um, there's hardly any um, interactions between groups. In fact, they don't make huge groups. Um, now, there are other Asian elephant populations, even within Sri Lanka, that do get together in really big groups. So that behavior is flexible. And likewise, in India, there's a lot more dominance interactions in certain populations. And so the it's a it's a matter of uh it's it's a it's a quantitative difference not a qualitative difference necessarily so um but what what is clear is that they don't tend to have very rigid dominance hierarchies and so what are what are dominance hierarchies dominance hierarchies um are thought of as a means to basically a means to avoid conflict to avoid competition over resources so you have this hierarchy where everyone knows their place and it helps to, you know, keep aggression or rather there might be aggression, but it keeps, helps to keep conflicts at a minimum. When you don't have that, I think what Asian elephants do in many cases is they use space to avoid each other. So, that, you know, they can, they use their, their sense of smell. They can tell where other elephants have been. Others probably recognize different social groups. And so they just stay out of each other's way. And, um, and, and this has, con- this is, this has implications, important implications. If, if you have elephants in a confined space and that might be in captivity or that might be in a protected area where their movements are constrained or they don't have enough habitat, that might mean that they, there's more conflict, there's more stress as a result, more aggression. And, and, and that, that can result because they don't have a way to get away from each other, basically. And they don't have this evolved mechanism of establishing a dominance hierarchy to resolve those conflicts. Yeah. So how does, I guess, when you, when you study this, how does that affect your conservation planning? You know, like it, it's got to have impacts on, you know, 
it, again, very complex, but, mm-hmm. you know, just, just looking at it from a, from a, a big picture view. Yeah. How would that, that impact that? Yeah. I think the, the, the main, um, one of the main implications is when, you know, when, when people are, try to manage elephants in, in Asia, a lot of, uh, in, in some cases, you know, they move animals around for management purposes. So they might, um, feel that uh, you know, elephants are causing a disturbance here or, you know, they're pocketed over here. And so, you know, let's translocate them or move them into another area. And when they do that, um, for especially for for females and for groups, unfortunately, they might be inadvertently fragmenting those social groups because unlike with African elephants where, you know, the entire family might be there. And so if you do move them, you might be able to round them all up and move the whole lot of them. In the, in the Asian elephant case, the families might be spread out. And so what you think is one herd of elephants is actually just a splinter of, of the entire social group. And then um, the other place, which I mentioned before, is that it has an impact is right now with when increasingly with loss of habitat um, there is a tendency still for um, the mindset to be to to drive elephants back into the forest Um, and you know the 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 forest quote unquote the forest which is an ever diminishing dwindling place and because they don't have these dominance hierarchies and they they really need the space to to uh, to move to forage to meet their nutritional requirements, but also socially to to maintain the peace, um, that might that might again be causing stress um, inadvertently. Yeah, yeah, it's just uh, uh, well, that's why that's why you do what you do, right? <laughs> <It's> just <laughs> to find these solutions, and then uh, you know, good science. So I guess that that kind of leads to the the next question or, or topic I really want to talk about. You know, some of the projects that Trunks and Leaves is involved in. You know, I know there's this project you, you talk about the coexistence project. So can you kind of talk about that and you know maybe some other things that you're investigating currently? Yeah. So we we started the coexistence project a few years ago. I should say that up until that point, we've primarily been research focused. So I've, I had been, because of my, my training primarily being in behavior, I was focused on um, the population dynamics and the behavior of, of the elephants inside the protected area. But with the po- coexistence project, we really first wanted to understand um, the behavior of elephants outside of the protected area, because that's where, you know, the conflicts happen. And 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 also people, right? So moving beyond elephants to you know understanding what people have to experience and and live with. Um, and so the one the fir- the first very important part of the coexistence project is also research oriented, understanding um, human perspectives and um, their attitudes towards elephants, how how whether they feel that they can live with elephants or not, and if if not, why not. Um, their cultivation practices, the economics, and, and, and the whole sort of big picture. And then once we understand that, um, to find solutions that work for both the people and the elephants. Now, for the elephants, the requirement is relatively simple. They need food, they need land, they need water, they need to be able to move around. So it, well, how can we facilitate that? What does it take for people to um, accept that? And is that even safe? So 
one one aspect of that is we've been using camera traps to um, study how elephants and people are using the landscape outside of the protected area, outside of this corridor where there's uh, agriculture and there's people and there's traffic and there's vehicles and there's people on foot and there's a lot of activity. And what we see is that, in fact, um, elephants and people are using the same spaces quite effectively. Elephants are avoiding people quite effectively. And so for the most part, um, it, at least in this location, there's not so much a danger for pe- that people will physically encounter an elephant accidentally. And so the biggest concern that people have, and rightfully so, is the economic loss that they can face if an elephant eats their crops. And so what we want to do is try, you know, alternative crops that might be more uh, robust to the presence of elephants. We ha- we've just been right. We're just in the baseline phase of um, of understanding what people are already growing and the economics of what they're growing, and then. Um, trying to figure out what are the economics of something else that they might grow, who you know, who might they sell it to, what could it be used in? Um, because obviously, before the farmers can grow something else, they we need to know that there's a market for it, and so that's what we're in the process of exploring in our situation. And there are other projects um, that are also doing similar things. Right. So, uh, what? Uh, I, I had this listed a little bit further down. But listening to you talk, what are some of the major obstacles that you're running into? And I know, I know you're you're, you're focused in Sri Lanka. Th- these elephants are spread across 13 different countries. So, is it is it? I wouldn't say frustrating because <laughs> in, in our line of work, I think in anything in conservation, it just comes with the territory, right? You just expect yeah. it. But yeah, you know, it, I guess what are some of the obstacles, and then are you seeing that across international boundaries? Yeah, yeah. In terms of the obstacles, so I, I should mention. Um, so, trunks and leaves. Um, we're based in the U.S. and I, I'm based in the U.S. But I have this project in Sri Lanka um, that I've been that I, that I've been running since before trunks and leaves was established. That I started for my graduate research, and that's the the research project that I've been talking about. Um, but then we also I aim want to uh, work with organizations in in different countries and we're just in the process of building those partnerships now to work in other countries as well um and some i think we have some of the same common obstacles and challenges in in different countries unfortunately um like one big one is just the the priorities of governments um so the you know in conservation circles the word development might be might have might have kind of become a bad word over time because unfortunately you know the development paradigms the old-fashioned development paradigms are still kind of the the models that many countries are following which is you know build roads build infrastructure you know and economic development will come right and with economic development there's, you know, there's a right way and there's a there's a wrong way to go about it, and and unfortunately, a lot of this development comes at the cost of nature, at the cost of wilderness, at the, at the cost of these habitats, and and so I think just sort of in terms of the big picture, that that I would say is just underlying all the other you know challenges that come up, um, and and these are things like land grabbing, encroachment. Um, there's a lot of places where there's a, a lack of proper, you know, land rights, like land tenure. 
um, for for indigenous people, for for people for native people, and just even for the rural poor, for farmers. And so, you know, when they don't have proper land rights, they don't have a a, a, a proper way to manage that resource. Um, and that's open to exploitation, uh, where you can have a lot of, for instance, moneyed interests um, coming in and grabbing land and plunking down a plantation or, or a factory or what have you, um, and clearing away hundreds of acres of habitat, much more than you know a smallholder farmer would do. Um, and 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 they kind of get scapegoated for it as well, because you know people think of all oh, this land clearing. Um, that happens at the frontiers it does happen that there are you know people who are sort of trying to eke out a living on these on these landscapes um, clearing land but then there's you know orders of magnitude more that are being just conceded away by governments um, to to plantations and other you know sort of interests um, other other challenges unfortunately are that when it comes to managing the elephants there's a sort of weird <laughs> mindset among um, uh, different agencies sometimes where the forests are managed by one agency and the animals are managed by another agency and they right, don't really right, talk right. to each other. And right. this is really bizarre, but it, ha- it seems to happen in, you know, in, again and again in different countries. And so the agency responsible for managing, you know, the conflict species, the elephants, or in this case, or what have you, yeah, have to sort of clean up the the mess left behind by other agencies that have different mandate and different priorities, whether it's you know timber extraction or like forest management, or in other cases promoting agriculture. So agricultural ministries um, can promote cultivation of crops that are palatable and are conflict prone and attract elephants, and then you know then managing that problem is someone else's responsibility. So unfortunately, that bureaucracy um, and the, and those m- m- mindsets um, are, can can be a big source of problems. And then just the basic, I think, uh, weight that people place on science, like just being evidence based, and that's why trunks and leaves, our our tagline is about evidence based conservation, and why we emphasize research because. Um, there's unfortunately a lot of management that happens that isn't evidence-based and that is not that is not backed by research and just and is just driven by political desire or what sort of people think um, should be done. So yeah, yeah. Now it's interesting, you know, thinking about your your belief in science. I know that it's oh geez, I looked this study up years ago uh, when when I was talking about science communication and and about, you know, in the U.S. population, I think about like 40-something percent really were skeptical about science and scientists and felt like scientists were politically motivated because of the news. And and that's not our training. Our training is to be evidence-based. That's what Angie and I preach. We, we have our opinions, but we we try not to let those bleed in because we just, we are evidence-based uh communicators and scientists. So hopefully with COVID as, as horrific as it is around the world, people are having more trust in the science because now we have vaccines on being rolled out that are hopefully going to end all this and, and we come out stronger. But it's interesting from, from a conservation viewpoint that strategies and things like that are, are based on science, sound science. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, anyways, you mentioned trunks and leaves. That's great. That that's a perfect transition into that, because you are the founder. So I, 
you know, what should the foundation's mission? And I, I want to ask because we have so many young listeners that are just so motivated to help. And, you know, I've, I've interviewed some other founders of conservation organizations. You are my hero. They're my heroes <laughs> because you're not getting wealthy. You're not doing this for money. You're not money motivated. Everybody that works in this field knows definitely it's not, you're not chasing dollar bills. You know, what's the foundation's mission and how did you go about setting this up? Yeah, the, the, so the mission of Trunks and Leaves is to facilitate evidence-based conservation, as I mentioned, of, of elephants and their habitats. And elephants and their habitats, because that's key. Um, and to do that through the science, but also education um, and advocacy. And I, I set it up actually about 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago now, um, right after I finished my PhD, because um, as an academic, as you know, you, you, you can hop from place to place. And so I knew that like once I finished my PhD, if I wanted to do a postdoc and maybe more than one postdoc, which is you know, the typical in biology, um, I'd be moving around. And so I wanted a sort of institutional home for the, the research that I was doing and plan to continue doing. Um, and so that was how I ended up creating Trunks and Leaves. And, and in fact, before I embarked on that, I, I looked for other um, sponsors, uh, fiscal sponsors uh, that would sort of provide the, the incubator or like the home for, for the work. Bef- you know, bef- it, it, I didn't plan to start an organization on my own. Yeah. It's no, not no, something no. that I, you know, no. like relish doing or like took on lightly. Um, but after I looked around, like it, it we, you know, we, we mentioned before the sort of um, Asian elephants are sort of the underdog. Like they don't really have the public awareness and um, the level of interest that some other species do. I mean, it sounds surprising given how, you know, how, how, how people, how much people love elephants and think they're cute and everything, but there's just not an awareness that they're, they are this terribly, terribly endangered species that could disappear in our lifetimes. And um, so I kind of felt compelled to start an organization focused on that um, and to keep furthering the, the research that I was doing and also expand into other um, areas that, you know, through partnerships and things. Yeah. So what are, I mean, what are some of the partners that you're working with other organizations? So um, as I mentioned before, we have been very research focused until now. So we, I've worked with a lot in collaboration with a lot of different universities. So a lot of collaborators and, and students from various universities um, in the U S and UK and, and Europe. And, um, and now we're, um, through, through with the coexistence project, um, what I w- what I am trying to build up so is um, a, a sort of grand experiment, a replicated experiment across different countries, and we've created a working group with partners from both academic and non-academic from NGOs um, backgrounds um, that are interested in this model that uh, that I mentioned of trying alternative crops, of tra- trying other economic you know solutions for the, the, the smallholder farmers that um, are facing conflict. And so um, um, my, my, my goal uh, ideally is to have projects that represent um, areas with the three different subspecies. So something you know, from mainland 
um, and um, Sumatran elephants and Borean elephants right now. Um, we have collaborations um, starting up for, for the mainland populations. The challenge, of course, as you know, is funding it. So we're right now looking on the lookout for uh, ways to, to fund a, a larger scale experiment that would involve these different countries. That's awesome. That's great. And oh, I can't even believe it. Like we're almost at an hour, uh, yeah. you know, I got about 10 minutes left. So just a couple more questions. You know, from your viewpoint, what's the greatest threat to biodiversity across the planet right now? I think probably hands down, um, it's climate change right now, just because it, it is so all encompassing, you know, it affects us, it affects life on land, and it affects life in the water and just everything. And um, um, But if you look at a terrestrial conservation, uh, the other major issue is our land use, right? Our, our footprint um, on, on land, it, it, not only does it make climate change worse, but it also has a very direct impact on all these different species through the habitats. Um, so I would say that is our, the number, the, the number one and two, if you want to, you know, prioritize um, challenges that we have to deal with. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I absolutely agree. So uh, I, I, I'm going to slip this one in there. How can our listeners help Asian elephants? What, what could they do? Somebody from the United States or Australia, uh, you know, they don't live in, in habitat of Asian elephants, but what could they do to help them from, from afar? Yep. So I have to say, of course, you know, the, the, the most direct thing that you can do is, of course, support us, support uh, our, our work and organizations like ours directly because um, that support is really crucial to, to letting us continue to do the work that we're doing. Um, and beyond that, you know, every, every, every person listening, um, I think, has recognized that, you know, even if a problem seems far away, you know, you don't maybe live with elephants, but, and so it's kind of hard it's not a, a, an, an easy pat answer, like, you know, boycott this product or that, but, but be a responsible consumer um, and be a responsible traveler. Uh, for example, lot, there are lots of elephants in, in these captive situations. And we have on our website some guidelines on how to be responsible when you travel because those, wild popula- those captive populations do interact with wild populations and have a, you know, have a, can have an impact on, on wild populations. Um, and, and, and then the products that you buy, you know, they're sourced from these faraway countries that ha- you know, they're sourced from raw materials from landscapes where elephants you know, live in. Um, so just in your day-to-day to be responsible. And again, we have tips on that. Um, on our website, and people can follow us on social um, for and for for more um, tips. And then, <laughs> given the moment, we were just talking about this earlier. Um, at, at, as we speak right now, there's some crazy, pol- you know, protests going on in in Washington D.C. Um, and I just have to remind all our listeners, you know, or, or like around the world, like it doesn't matter where you are. You you need to exercise your right as a citizen. To, you know, and be a responsible citizen to 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 put people you know to put representatives in power 
that will advocate and that will speak up for the environment, for endangered species, for the, for, you know, for these things that we care about, because we have, you know, we have power as consumers and as individuals, um, and that can take you so far, but you need that leadership, that political leadership um, in places that matter to, to really, you know, push us, put us over the top and, and, and address things like climate change, where we need to act as a, as a global community, as a global society, to address, you know, trade policies and whatnot. So those are the things that I would ask people to do. No, yeah, that's great. Those are great suggestions. And then real quick, which social media can they follow you on? Which ones are you guys on? We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And they can, um, all of them have the same um, handle, and that's trunks and leaves. That's trunks like tree trunks or elephant trunks, the letter N, and leaves, trunks and leaves. And our website is trunksandleaves.org. Yeah, I'll list that on on the uh, the show notes for everybody. But I, that I like blinked and that was over. That was that was great, Ugh. Dr. Sherman De Silva, the founder of Trunks and Leaves. We we love elephants here, obviously, and our listeners do too. And thank you for your insight. I, I, I think you know, looking at all these different species across the planet, and then you know, specifically Asian elephants. There, you give us a lot of hope. People like you give us a lot of hope that we're out there fighting for these animals, using science, uh, starting foundations like you did, doing what you do. So I just want to say for, from our listeners and from Angie, thank you so much. And thank you for spending an hour with us and, and talking about uh, trunks and leaves and all the work you're doing. Thank you, Chris. And thank you for having me again and for, you know, the, the great work that your show is doing, getting all these um, viewpoints and getting all these stories out. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Take care. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.